All right, everyone, let's take out our Bibles together. If you will, turn with me once again to the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13 today. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Mark. Chapter 2, starting in verse 13, here in just a moment. Well, it's everyone's favorite time of year, is it not? I mean, at least it should be. This should be your favorite time of year. How is this not your favorite time of year if it's not? I mean, really, the potential, the excitement, the feeling that anything could happen. You can feel a difference in the air and in your bones. Everyone's working a little bit harder. Everyone's staying up a little bit later. doesn't matter who you are. Everyone is affected one way or the other by this most wonderful time of the year. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not talking about spring, if that's what you're thinking. Not spring. It's the, the other most wonderful time of the year. You know what I'm talking about, right? The other most wonderful time of the year. A time when for some there is heartbreak, but for other there is joy they didn't expect. A time where we play close attention to those numbers at the end of the lines, right? And we all fill out our little pieces of paper with excitement. And some of us even submit our little pieces of paper with money to go along with it. And then we anxiously wait to see what's going to happen. I'm sorry, I'm not talking about March Madness. No, no. The, the other time of the year. Everyone's favorite time of the year. You know what I'm talking about. It's tax season. It's tax season. It's everyone's favorite time of the year. Of course it is, right? It's the time of year where we all get to spend a significant chunk of our hard-earned money and send it to the government. We love this time of the year. Well, I say that in jest, but today we are going to look at Jesus' calling of a tax collector to follow him. A tax collector. And that's going to be a big deal, a big part of this passage that you wouldn't know unless you, you knew a little bit about the culture of the day. Jesus calls a tax collector named Levi to follow him in our text. Now, you might better know Levi as Matthew, or one and the same person, Levi and Matthew. When you read this account here in Mark, as well as the, the parallel accounts in Matthew 9 and Luke 5, it becomes absolutely clear these two, Levi and Matthew, are one and the same person. But then the question becomes, and, and we, we need to get this out of the way just up front, why does he have two names? Why is it Levi and Mark, and why is it Matthew in Matthew, the book that he wrote and called himself that? What, why is it different names? Well, there's really two possibilities here. We're not totally sure, but there's two possibilities here. Either Levi was his Hebrew name and Matthew was his Greek name. This often happened, for example, Saul and Paul. That's what happened there, right? Saul's name was not changed to Paul. Jesus never changed his name. Saul was his Greek name or his Hebrew name, and Paul was his Greek name. Could have been like that with Levi and Matthew, or it could have been like what Jesus did for Peter, that Jesus would have actually given him a new Christian name when he started following him, and his name from birth was Levi, and then Jesus calls him and says, you're going to be Matthew now. Matthew actually means gift of God. So it could have been that's what happened. Either way, We know that this is one and the same person. So if you hear me saying Levi today, you know I mean Matthew. If you hear me just slip into Matthew as we're often calling him, you know I mean Levi in the text. But here in our text, it's Levi. So let's read our text. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. We're going to go down through verse 17. This is God's word. Mark writes, he, Jesus, 
went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So I want to take this section kind of piece by piece with you, if if you will. The, the first comes in verses 13 through 14, where Jesus calls a tax collector. Jesus called a tax collector to follow him. Specifically, verse 14. He passes by, he sees Levi, and he says, follow me. Now, you've got to understand what the Jews thought about tax collectors in this time. The Jews were living in a time where they were being oppressed by the Romans. The Romans had the power, and they were using that power to lean on the Jews and to squeeze out of them everything they could, specifically money, through taxation. They were using their power to tax the Jews in all the ways that they could. In many ways, it was oppressive, it was unjust, but they had the power. What are you going to do, right? And... and Honestly, a lot of the the Jews of that day thought the Messiah was going to come and free them from Roman oppression. That's what they thought the Messiah was going to come and do. But understand how Jews must have seen tax collectors like Matthew, like Levi. A man who was a Jew by birth, but who decided to turn on his own people and work with the Romans to help them fleece his own people, and to make money off of it in the process himself. The closest thing we might be able to think of like this would be World War II and a Jewish person going to the Nazis saying, I know where some of my fellow Jews are hiding. If you will pay me money, I will, I will tell on them for you and I will let you know. I mean, what would you think about such a person? What a traitor. What, they're, they're absolutely turning on us and giving us up for their own selfish benefit. This is how people thought of tax collectors back in that day. If you remember Zacchaeus, little Zacchaeus was a tax collector just like this. Jesus told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. And it's surprising because the man who goes home justified was a tax collector. Okay, and so that's what they thought of tax collectors. Now, with that as our background, understand Jesus is a rabbi. Jesus is a teacher of God's ways and God's truth, trying to bring other disciples along with him and teach them the ways of God. No Jewish upstanding rabbi would have called a tax collector to follow him. No Jewish rabbi. Who, who is any kind of upstanding man would have called a tax collector to follow him. This is surprising all in itself. But it shows us that Jesus calls all sorts. Jesus calls all sorts of people to follow him. I mean, just think about all of us here in this room and the differences in all of us. What Jesus called us from and out of 
what kind of people we were before Jesus called us. All kinds, all sorts. Whether you grew up in a Christian home or whether you learned early how to sin and how to defy God, perhaps even from your parents or from whoever you were raised with. Whether you're an upstanding citizen with a respectful life or you've lived a shameful one. Jesus calls all sorts. All sorts. And what did Levi do when Jesus called him? It says he got up and followed. Jesus says, follow me, and he did. In fact, the way that Luke puts it, Luke 5.28 says, he got up and left everything and followed him. He left everything to follow this man. He left his business. He left his way of life. He left his means of income. He left it all behind to follow this man. What was going on in Matthew's heart as Jesus looked at him and said, follow me? How did he know? How did he feel in his heart? Yes, this is exactly what I need to do. This is exactly what I was born to do. It's much like Peter and Andrew or James and John that we looked at in Mark chapter 1. They they left their boats. They left their fishing business behind. James and John left their father's ebony behind and they followed this man, Jesus. They left it all behind. Now you might look at those people and think, "That's, that's amazing. I don't feel like I've done that. Have I really left things behind to follow Jesus? And I'm here to tell you this morning, let me encourage you. If you are truly following Jesus today, you have. If you are truly following Jesus today, you have left things behind. Because every true follower of Jesus leaves something behind. Every true follower of Jesus. Now the question underneath that question is, are you a true follower of Jesus? Are you really following him? That's a question we'll get to here in just a moment. But every true follower of Jesus has left things behind. Everyone has. Whether it's the pleasures of sin, or career prospects, the the possibility of riches. For some people, when they follow Jesus and they decide to walk with him, they leave behind family because of the way that they were raised, because of their family's own religion or lack thereof. They, They might leave behind a potential spouse. Every one of us leaves something behind when we come to follow Jesus. For every single one of us, you know, those are all examples, but for every single one of us, we left behind the right to self-determination. You are not your own when you choose to follow Jesus. That's what you're signing up for. You are not your own. You were bought at a price, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We are slaves now to righteousness and to God himself. We give up the right to live for ourselves and our own desires when we sign up to follow Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Will save it. In, in a very real sense, every single one of us who is following Jesus today has left it all behind. Everything. Not just some things. Everything. Because Jesus also says in Luke 14, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus demands that if we follow him, we renounce all that we have. Now, that does not mean you you, you must go out and sell all your possessions. That's not what he's saying. 
Renounce all that you have. It's not mine anymore. Nothing will stand in the way of of me and God. Nothing else will sit on the throne of my heart but God. Everything else is such a distant second best. Such a distant second place. Because I've renounced it all for him. He is everything now. He is everything. And so be encouraged today. If you are genuinely walking with the Lord, you have left things behind. That's what you signed up for. Did you know you signed up for that? I hope so. That's what you sign up for when you follow Jesus, to leave it all behind. That's exactly what Levi did. Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. And in that moment, he left it all behind and followed. Have you done that today? Have you left it all behind? Have you left it all behind? Some of you might be thinking, well, that's an easy question. No, I haven't. I haven't become a Christian yet. I I haven't given my life to the Lord at all. I know I'm not a Christian. I have not left it all behind. And to you, Jesus is saying, will you follow me too? Will you follow? Will you leave it all behind? Because what you receive back is so much greater than anything you will renounce. What you receive back for all eternity is so much greater than anything you will renounce. Will you leave it all behind to follow Jesus? But for others, the question's not so easy. Because some of us have been sitting in a pew every Sunday for years and years and years. Some of us have been living the Christian life on the outside for decades. Some of us have been praying before our meals acting like an upstanding citizen, saying that we come from a good Christian family. But that's not the question. That's not the question today. It's not, have you been living like a Christian on the outside? No, the question is, have you left it all behind? Have you left it all behind? You. Have you ever done that? Is Jesus really on the throne of your heart? Or has he just been, for decades... A nice little add-on to an already nice life. That's not it, brothers and sisters. Jesus demands that if we follow him, we renounce all that we have. We deny ourselves and take up our cross, which is another spiritual way of saying we kill off ourselves, and then we live for him. It's him. Have you left it all behind? Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what Levi did. And so Jesus called a tax collector. And then after he called a tax collector, the tax collector held a feast. We see this in verse 15. As he reclined at table in his house. Now that's talking about Matthew, not Jesus. Right? Jesus doesn't have the home to lay his head. This is Matthew's house. We actually learn that explicitly from Luke 5.29. Levi is putting on this great feast in his own house. And then he invites people to come to the feast. Jesus and his disciples come. But then it says there are many others who are there. There were many who followed Jesus. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus at the table inside of Levi's house. This right here is a real life example of Jesus' statement in Luke 14, starting in verse 12. Listen to what Jesus says to a man who had invited him over for dinner. Luke 14, 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends, 
or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now we could spend all morning on that passage right there, but I, I want you to see from there what Matthew is doing is he's inviting the spiritually poor, the spiritually lame. Matthew probably doesn't have a lot of good upstanding Jewish friends to invite. We, we heard earlier what people thought of tax collectors there. He invites who he can. He invites people who will actually come, my fellow outcast tax collector friends and other sinners. We'll get there here in just a second. But, but notice a small principle from this. Some of the very best evangelists are brand new Christians. Some of the very best evangelists are brand new Christians. Some of us sitting in here have been Christians for decades, right? And, and we have learned to surround ourselves with other Christians. But some of the very best evangelists are brand new Christians who still have a, a, a friendship circle filled with lots and lots of unbelievers. And if they genuinely get converted to Christ and he genuinely changes their heart, they go and tell him, listen to what happened to me. Let let me bring you in on this. I've got lots of people I can share this with. Some of the very best evangelists are brand new Christians. And so Matthew invites his fellow outcast tax collectors. It says there were many people who followed Jesus, many desperate people, many sinful people following Jesus. And so here's Matthew hosting a dinner party. They've got the most holy and righteous religious leader in history there and a bunch of people everyone else would have considered the scum of the earth. That's the party. There's a very interesting scene. But I want you to, to see from this a lesson for us as a church, a warning really to us as a church. Because brothers and sisters, there is a way that we as a church can become so focused on our own holiness and our own people that we turn in on ourselves and forget all about the people out there who are perishing, who are perishing. And we're fine because ignorance is bliss. We turn in on ourselves. We become so content with our own group and our own culture. And we get to the point, we can get to the point where we don't want outsiders to come in and mess this up. And we have Bible studies and fellowship meals and worship services, but it's all about us. And we sit comfortably in our pews while the world around us goes to hell. And we say in our hearts, God, I thank you that I am not like all the people out there. And my friends, if we create a culture like that in our church, what is coming for us is what came for the church in Ephesus in Jesus' words in Revelation 2.5. Listen to Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and do what? Remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Brothers and sisters, do not make the mistake of thinking it is Jesus' will for every church to keep its doors open. It is not. Jesus will kill a church. And he'll do it when he sees a culture that is nothing like what his body should look like. He'll kill a church. And he'll do it on purpose. To purge his body of disease. 
We cannot become a culture that is so inward focused that we don't give a rip about people going to hell out there. That becomes so inward focused that we don't want anyone who's not like us to come in and mess this up. Right? What if somebody comes in here and they're not like us? Listen here. A a, a lot of us, we're, we're totally on board with new people coming to the church. As long as those people are like us. As long as those people have got it together like we do. As long as those people are good, upstanding citizens. They don't make things feel awkward, right? But when somebody comes in who's not like us, all of a sudden it's like, wait a second. No, this is, this, this is, this is messing up my comfort zone. Friends, we are not a country club. And we are not a monastery. And we are not a museum. We are a hospital for sinners with one great physician. And at any point in time, you are either a nurse or a patient in that hospital. And sometimes you're both. But there is one great physician and we are a hospital for sinners. The poem on the Statue of Liberty says this. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Now, I am not here to talk politics or immigration to you, but that should be the attitude of the church. That should be the church right there. One of the, the greatest hymns of all time, one of my favorite hymns is, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. And it says this, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity, love, and power, right? We welcome them all. Jesus calls all sorts. And woe to us if we stand in the way of Jesus calling all sorts. And so the tax collector threw a feast, but then Jesus welcomed the outcast. This rolls right into our next point and our final point. Jesus welcomed those outcasts who were there. He welcomed the outcasts who were there. Look at verse 16 with me. Verse 16 in our text, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he, Jesus, was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciple, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now the Pharisees, understand this, the Pharisees knew Jesus was a rabbi. He was a weird one. He was a, 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 a not, not following the typical pattern, but they knew he's a religious teacher. So they're sitting there saying, why does he do that? There's no other rabbi who does this. Why does he do that? You see, the Pharisees, their, their very name tells us they were separatists. In the Hebrew, that's what Pharisee means, the separatist. You know, so Jewish people of that day, they didn't speak English, but they would have thought that that's what those people are. They were saying they are the separate ones, the separatists. That's what Pharisee means. And so the, the Pharisees were, were separated out from the rest of the people. And they're like, what, what is he doing? He's not doing that. Now, before you, you get all up on your own high horse, understand that the Pharisees are coming from the Old Testament scriptures. And if you read the Old Testament scriptures and pay attention, you can find many places where it tells us to be exactly that, separated out. We are to be set apart. That's what the word holy means. The Pharisees might have been thinking about scriptures like Psalm 1, starting in verse 1. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And we could give all kinds of other countless examples of scriptures like that. And so the Pharisees are sitting there thinking, this man is not setting himself apart like he should from sinners, from anti-God people. But... The minute that you try to make this a black and white issue with a simple answer is the minute that you lose the biblical tension that is supposed to be there for us, where we are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. That comes from Jesus' prayer in John 17. Or we are supposed to be a light to the world, but holy and set apart from it. Both. We are supposed to be bringing sinners to the one who can save them while not letting the cares and temptations of the world pull us away from God. That tension has to be there as Christians. It's one of the reasons I said earlier, we are not a monastery, right? The the monks, for all of their discipline and for all of their uh, pursuing of the Lord in their personal lives, have got something fundamentally wrong, right? The Pharisees were doing really well at one side of this tension, but only one side. And so they were scandalized that Jesus would sit in the company of sinners. Now let's examine that for a second. Did you notice how in our text, over and over again, it said the word sinners. It's an interesting choice of words. It says the same thing in Matthew 9, Luke 5, as he, verse 15, for example. As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. Verse 16, they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Sinners. Now, aren't we all sinners? Why does it say sinners? Aren't we all sinners? Well, of course we are. Every single one of us is a sinner, right? Well, then if we're all sinners, why does it say it like that? If we're all sinners, it should be confusing to us when we read this passage. But it's not, is it? You're not confused. I'm not confused. Why? Why is it not confusing? Well, it's because while we all know we're sinners, we're not as bad as those people. Right? That's why we all get it. We understand. This doesn't doesn't upset us. This doesn't confuse us. We get it. We're not as bad as those people. Those are the real sinners. Those are the real bad ones. That's why it says this. Admit it. When we read passages like this, we automatically think those people are different than us. This passage isn't talking about me, it's talking about them. And that's exactly what the Pharisees thought. Only they're not as concerned with hiding it as we are. Right? They just came out and said it. And so until you begin to identify with the tax collectors and the sinners here... You are not ready to be healed by this physician. Because those who are well, he says, have no need of the physician. It is only those who are sick. He came not to call the righteous, the righteous in their own eyes. He came to call sinners. And so is this passage talking about the really bad people... Or is it talking about people like me? And your answer to that question makes all the difference. The fact that Jesus was eating with these people scandalized and offended the Pharisees. Would it offend you? Would it have offended you? 
Don't be too quick to answer that question. Let's be honest with ourselves in our hearts. If Jesus were here today, what kind of people would be at his table? I guarantee you it would be a bunch of people of the kind that we would never invite into our homes for a meal, at least many of us. It'd be, it'd be the homeless man that you think is a lazy freeloader. Jesus would have invited him. The person who doesn't know how to act in public and makes all kinds of social interactions awkward, Jesus would have invited them. It'd be men living a gay lifestyle. It'd be women living a lesbian lifestyle. It'd be drug addicts. It would be the kind of people that would offend some of us, and Jesus would have invited them. You see, if you've got your life together, and you've been a respectable Christian for most of your life, that's wonderful. It really is. But you probably wouldn't have been at Jesus' table, at least not this night. Because he came as a doctor to the sick, not the healthy. He said this to Pharisees, to separatists who couldn't believe he was eating with these sinners. And he says it with a sense of irony there at the end of verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Well, hold on. Everyone has need of this physician, right? Every single person has need of this man, this great physician. Every person has need of his healing. So what does he mean? He means that not everyone admits that they need him. Not everyone thinks that they need him. Those who felt secure in their own righteousness did not receive the attention of Jesus. Rather, it was those who felt shame and tears over their sins. And those who humbled themselves before him. And so once again, this is a real life example, a real life illustration of Jesus' teaching elsewhere. This time we go to the Beatitudes. And he starts there, Matthew 5, 3, with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, it essentially means spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who come to God saying, I don't have anything. to to give to you. There is no reason I deserve your attention. I just plead for you to have mercy with me. And that's exactly what God wants, right? I, I have no deserving qualities to put before you, God. I have no deserving qualities to receive Jesus's love and care. I just need your mercy if there's any chance. And Jesus is like, ding, ding, ding. You got it right there. That's it, right? Or or the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is not just a beatitude about people who are grieving over, say, the loss of a loved one. It's about mourning for your sin, right? Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, because they will be comforted. The the spiritually prideful, the self-righteous, do not mourn over their sin. Many times they do not even think they have sin that they need to mourn over. But those who do come to Jesus and find that is exactly what he's looking for. That's exactly the kind of person he wants. And so I go back once more to the story that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. He told the story, and he specifically says in Luke 18, he told this story to those who were secure in their own righteousness. And he says, the two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and one was a tax collector. The Pharisee prays, looks up to God, and is very 
secure in his own righteousness and says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Then he sees a tax collector. I, I particularly thank you that I'm not like this traitor over here. Thank you, God, that I am not like that. I do this, I do that, I do that. Thank you. What a smug prayer. And yet, the tax collector, whom everybody would have heard in the story, everybody would be thinking, that's, the, that's not the, the true Jew at heart. That's the traitor. The tax collector, it says, stands far away, would not even look up because he was so ashamed, beat his breast and cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, he goes home justified, and the Pharisee does not. That is what Jesus is looking for. He is not looking for you to have your life altogether. He calls all sorts. What he's looking for is humility and faith. We've seen that over and over again in the book of Mark. Humility and faith. Humility and faith. That's what Jesus is looking for. And so to anyone who is ashamed of your life and your deeds, to anyone who sees yourself as a sinner, a sinner like this, to anyone who is spiritually needy and poor, to anyone who feels like you need a whole lot of work because you are seriously messed up, to anyone who doesn't have anyone to sit with or eat with because everyone else has turned away from you, Jesus invites you to his table. You are exactly who he came for. And the great secret is, that's all of us. The great secret is, that's all of us. Are you willing to admit it? If only we will humble ourselves and admit our need, we will find a Savior with open arms, ready to forgive and ready to help us walk in holiness, even though it's going to be difficult. And so I ask you today, back to the question that we had before, have you left everything? Have you left everything to follow him? Jesus looks at you today. From God's word, Jesus is looking at you into your heart and saying, follow me, you, follow me. Will you say yes or will you resist the call of the Holy Spirit? Will you give up everything to gain everything? Or will you hold on to your life? Which Jesus says, if you do, you will eventually lose it for all eternity. Right now, we're going to take a couple minutes, as we always do after hearing from God's word, take a couple minutes to pray. We give these moments of silent prayer for every single one of us to respond to God's word. We'll have a time here in just a moment for those who need to respond in a public way to do so, but every single one of us needs to respond in some way, shape, or form. And we all need to do it probably in different ways. So we ask you to go to the Lord right now in silent prayer and to, to do whatever business with him that you need to do in reaction to what he just laid upon your heart through his word. And then after we pray for a few moments, we'll come back together and we'll have an invitation time, like we said, for those who need to respond publicly. Let's pray.